During the week, um, Pastor Tim sits in uh, our study and uh, he goes off on one as he often does, wants to talk through what the Lord's laying on his heart. And it gets the juices flowing and you start having a discussion about Jesus and about who he is and how he impacts your life and it kind of gets you thinking personally about those things and it was such a great word this morning brother I want to say that very publicly I I thought it was just spot on for us as a church I know it was for me personally and but as we were talking about elements of that during the week I, I started to think about who is Jesus for me and what does it mean to follow him and that's what I want to look at with you this evening so Shirley's going to come and she's going to read a passage of scripture about some people who said they wanted to follow Jesus. Come and read that. The reading is <laughs> okay. set to go. The reading this evening is from Luke chapter nine, verses fifty-seven to sixty-two and it's entitled, The Cost of Following Jesus. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So um, I don't know how familiar you are with this passage, but uh, it's certainly one that I'm sure you, you probably have read before. And uh, if you've got a, a, a copy of the Bible on your phone or you've uh, picked up a pew Bible or whatever, do please leave it open because I want to encourage you to look at this passage with me. In, in this passage, Luke introduces us to, to three guys who Jesus meets as he's traveling around with his disciples. They're, they're guys that actively want to follow Jesus. It's interesting that two of them ask the question about following Jesus, and one of them, Jesus actually says to him, follow me. And there's this interplay between each one of them and Jesus. They have this, this conversation. And what strikes me about this passage is the way in which Jesus handles them. This is a brilliant passage for teaching about man management and interpersonal skills and interpersonal relationships. So uh, in some of the work I do with the colleges, um, very often I'm asked to talk about uh, the minister and the ministerial role and how we might interact with people and how particularly we might interact with the public. 
And this is one of my go-to passages, because I think here you learn a, a lot about Jesus and his man management skills. I don't necessarily want to look too closely at that with you this evening, but I just want you to think about Jesus in this scenario. Because most people with a cause are busy trying to recruit as many people as they can, aren't they? You've all had a charity mugger come up to you, haven't you? <coughs> you're in Newport, you're in Cardiff, and uh, somebody will come up to you and say, save the whale, sir, save the whale, you know? Or World Wildlife, uh, Wildlife Fund or something. They, they want to sign you up. They're trying to recruit as many people as they can to their cause. This is very common in this day and age. And, and you can kind of understand it, because if you and I are going to be a bit honest for a minute, we're in the same game. You know, he prayed it, that man there. And I, I'm going to put my hand up and say, I want to see it too. I want to see this church full. I do want to see this church full. So I want to encourage people to engage with me and engage with us and, and come. You know, I hope my motives are right for that. I don't just want a standing order. It would help, but there we go. You know, it, it, you've got to be honest about that. And, you know, Alzheimer's Society do it. The Dementia Trust do it because we held the coffee morning and things. But raising awareness, prostate cancer, comic relief last Friday. All of these things, they're trying to, to get you involved, draw you in. Very often have your money, but they want you to feel a sense of ownership with their cause. It's a natural thing. We expect to see that. Because when you have a cause, the way you can gain influence and momentum with it is to bring people on board. Do you understand what I'm saying? So what on earth is Jesus doing in this passage telling people the exact opposite? Because he's not exactly lending himself to having people joining him. Let's just be honest. You come to this passage and you've got to I mean, I want to take him aside and get him a management consultant for a minute and say, pal, you, you've got a problem interacting with people. You're not helping yourself here. You're not helping yourself telling people the things you're telling them. You, you, you've got to, I mean, you're dissuading people the way you're coming over. Because that's what it looks like, doesn't it? When you look at this passage, a minister friend of mine was sharing with me a long time ago now uh, some advice that he was given by an older minister whom he greatly respected. And the old man said to him, always endeavor to keep your church as small as you can. Ah. Always endeavor to keep your church as small as you can. That's strange, isn't it? What on earth is that about? It was coming from a, a man who had been highly respected. He'd uh, pastored a very large church, a large congregation. But what he meant was, you need to preach the truth of God's salvation and the demands of following Jesus so clearly that only those who have truly counted the cost and are ready to give up everything to follow Jesus, will join you. 
Because there is a danger, isn't there, that we get into the kind of superficiality of what the Christian message is all about, and we kind of get into the entertainment side of it, and the kind of flippery of it all, and we kind of want to woo people in. And we don't tell them the full truth about what actually following Jesus is about. I just say again, I, I do want to see as many people as possible come to Christ. My big, hairy, audacious goal, which I shared with the leadership of this church eight, nine years ago, is that 100,000 people across Wales would come to know Christ. Please, God. Please, God. That, that's, that's, that's my big, hairy, audacious goal, okay? That's where I'm coming from. But I, I want to say this to you tonight, as one of your pastors, I don't just want to get a crowd. Because I don't think that having a crowd is the same as having disciples of Jesus. Do you get what I mean? It doesn't interest me in just having you know, a popularity contest with other ministers in this town. I mean, I know I'd win, of course I would, but I mean, you know, it's not what it's about. I want to see men and women, boys and girls, turning to Jesus and being radically transformed. And unless, going back to Pastor Tim's message this morning, unless our Jesus is big enough, we will always fall short and go for something that is anything but the truth. And we will sell out for something that is cheap and just whets the appetite. I want to see people becoming sold out for Jesus. So it's interesting to read of Jesus and the way he deals with those who express the desire to follow him. He seems to be trying to discourage them here. Look deeper at it, though, with me. Because on the surface, it might seem like that. But I think if you dig a bit deeper, you'll see a lot more in this passage. See, in actual fact, Jesus' desire is that people will follow him. Of course it is. But he wants them to think it through first. I'm often saying to you, aren't I, you know, as Christians, we're not called upon to check in our brains in, in, in the foyer and just come to church and kind of <laughs> go through the motions. That's not what it's about. We have to engage. So we have to think about what is the reality of following Christ? What does it actually mean to say, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm, I'm a Christian. Have you ever thought that through, I wonder? Have you counted the cost involved? Or is, is this Christianity stuff nicely compartmentalized in a nice little box, as we saw this morning, that just reduces Jesus to a plastic little imitation thing that we trot out at Christmas and we use it as an excuse for a blowout at Easter. Have we thought about what it actually entails to follow him, to be a disciple? 
I think if we really engaged with that up here, maybe we wouldn't struggle so much. Maybe we wouldn't dip and wane in our enthusiasm for God as much, in our devotion for him and to him. He spells out what's required in this passage. It's very, very clear. It's shocking. But inside, I can imagine he's longing for these guys to accept what he's saying. I think he's rooting for them. But the cost is the cost. It's non-negotiable. And these guys have to be prepared for that. And I think this speaks volumes to us in our 21st century with all that we have and enjoy and all the benefits of living in the UK and everything. So let's look at these three guys, shall we? And, and just look at how Jesus confronts them and how he brings his demands to the table. And I want you to consider me, with me the cost of following Jesus. That's what we're going to look at just for the brief time we've got left. Look at the first guy with me. If you look in your Bible, you see verses 57 and 58. And from his conversation there, I think Jesus is showing us that if you're going to follow him, you can't have any earthly security. You can't have any earthly security. If you're going to follow him, you can't have any earthly security. Look at verses 57 and 58. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to place his head. It's quite a bold statement this uh, guy makes, isn't it? I'll follow you wherever you go. Can you say that without any idea of where this Jesus may be headed? Did this guy really understand what he was saying? I, I, see, I, I get it in the 21st century. I'll follow you wherever you go because we might end up at an airport and getting on an airplane and flying somewhere rather exotic. But airplanes hadn't been invented back then. So what is this guy thinking? What's up here as he's saying these words? What does he think? Where's it going to take him if he's saying, follow you wherever you go but what is that going to look like what's it going to be what's going to be involved in that journey i want to say to this fella hey come on you need some more information first if you get some information about the itinerary you you may say oh yes i fancy that i i might because let's be honest you know if jesus turned around to you and me and said i'm going to birmingham i'm going to dudley you'd probably say all the best but if he said he was going to Bluestone in Pembrokeshire, he'd probably say, thank you very much. I'm coming along for the ride. There are some places that interest us and some places that don't. Does this guy have enough facts to hand? Jesus replies that to follow him wherever he's going won't be an easy road. He's not one of these high-flying rabbis who jets from village to village, staying in the best hotels and collecting nice offerings from the crowds that come to hear him. No, sir, this is a true faith ministry. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no holiday inn to stay in. 
See, when Jesus stepped out of the throne room of heaven to come to earth and live and die for us, he left behind everything. He exchanged wealth for poverty. He came out of ivory palaces into a rude cattle shed. He exchanged rulership for servanthood. And he says, foxes of dens, birds of nests, the son of man has no place to call home. What an irony. What an irony. The king of glory, the heir apparent to the throne of the universe, doesn't have a place to put his head at night. He's got absolutely no earthly security whatsoever. Nothing. He was literally loaned accommodation by those who loved him. People like Mary and Martha, Lazarus. He borrowed a coin to tell a story one day. He borrowed a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. I, I know it fulfills prophecy and all of that, but that's what he had to do. He had to borrow. He was even buried in a borrowed tomb. Just as well, he didn't need it for that long. Hello? Keep up. He had nothing. He had absolutely nothing. Boy, do I see his glory. Boy, do I see his glory shining here. He gave up everything to come and stand by me. Wow. Wow. The king of heaven. We've just been singing it. It's easy to sing it. When did you think about this last? The king of heaven came emptied himself of all that he had and deigned to be our guest and stand among us in this, our planet Earth and become like one of us. Those who follow Jesus have to be prepared to go on the same road. No earthly security. Now note, please, carefully, I haven't said no security. I've said no earthly security. There is security in following Jesus. It's just not earthly security. It's not the security of possessions or money or homes or pension funds because you'd have to be terribly middle class to be a Christian if that was the case. And praise God, you don't. Because there are people in this world that have nothing that you and I enjoy. And yet they follow Jesus. And they know the security of God's faithfulness. And a life beyond this one. They've got nothing here. And you see, whatever state you're in, whatever, however much money you've got, however overdrawn you are tonight, however much the bank is chasing you about your mortgage. I just want to say this to you. In Jesus Christ, you have security that nothing can take away. And that's what we need to remember. Foxes of dens, birds of nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You're going to follow me? You don't need security on earth. You need to count the cost. When we 
read that. That's what we need to understand. And look at the second guy, verses 59 and 60. From Jesus' conversation with him, we, we see that the follower of Jesus has got no earthly ties. He's got no earthly security, but he's got no earthly ties either. Look closely at those two verses. He said, he said to the other guy, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him that the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, you know, let's cut to the chase. You read that, and again, if you were a management consultant, you'd be saying to Jesus, oh, back off. This isn't endearing you to people. This is wrong. You don't, you don't get people on board with you by saying things like this. But you, you need to delve into the text. You need to understand something about Jewish culture as well, which, which I'll come back to in a moment. But this conversation, no doubt, has shocked many, many people down through the centuries. As people have looked at this text in many cultures across the world, they've looked at that and they've read that and they've thought, flip me. What kind of a guy is this Jesus? Let me go and bury my father. Well, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. It seems like a reasonable request by the bloke, doesn't it? Let, let, me, let me just bury my dad, please. You feel sympathy, sympathy for the poor guy, don't you? I mean, I know I do. And Jesus replies to him, let the dead bury their own dead. dead. I've called you to preach for me. I think the point Jesus is making here, and let no one mistake this, is that if you're going to follow Jesus, then the claims of his kingdom come before anything and anyone else. That's the key thing here. Jesus said elsewhere that he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You get the picture of the kind of devotion that he's calling for. Again, don't misunderstand it. He's not calling for us to dishonor parents or shirk our responsibilities towards our children. No, no, no. But if we are pressed into a choice between the two, he comes first. And some have had to lose family to follow Christ. You will know, and I've read stories of missionaries that have gone overseas and lost their lives because they put Christ first. William Carey, the father of modern missions, went to India to Serampore and his dear wife was taken ill and she died. Story after story that we read of, of people putting Christ first. When I was pastor at Milton, there was a young couple in the church and uh, a young uh, girl uh, who was engaged to be married to a young man that was candidating for ministry. And uh, Julia's family had uh, been heavily involved in the Jehovah's Witness uh, movement. And uh, 
she'd uh, seen the light, quite literally, and uh, become a believer in Christ, had left Jehovah's Witness. Her own mother wouldn't talk to her. If she walked down the road and saw her mother coming towards her, her mother would turn around and walk the other way. She was not welcome because she had taken the decision to follow Christ. This is very real. The follower have, of Jesus has no ultimate earthly ties. Jesus says, you need to leave that behind. Now, let's cast a little bit more light on this conversation because I think we just need to understand something about the context here. Jesus is speaking to this guy and when the guy turns around and says, let me first go and bury my father, I don't know whether you, you know anything about Jewish funeral procedures back in the first century, but an initial burial took place very soon after a person dies. That still happens nowadays, and not just in Jewish custom, but in a lot of customs across the world. You wouldn't wait, you know, the kind of two weeks we have to wait in this country to get the Gwent crematorium or something. You know, you are buried the next day. Now, this man isn't locked away in mourning, so we can assume that the burial had already taken place. So what's he talking about here? Well, the Jewish custom then was, about a year later, after the first burial, I won't go into the graphic reasons for it, but the son, if there was a son, he would return to rebury the bones of the deceased in a very special box that was put into a slot in the tomb wall. And if that's the situation here, and I think commentators are quite right in this, it's quite right for us to assume this. You start to understand that really what this guy is saying to Jesus is, I'll do it in a year's time. Not just yet. Because for those of us in this room, and it's a lot of us, we have lost loved ones, we've lost spouses, we've lost parents, some of us have lost children. How long do you stay in mourning? How do you answer that question? So you can't put a time frame on mourning, and yet in that tradition, the Jewish tradition, the Jewish custom, there was this thing that, yeah, after about a year, you came and you took the bones and you did this with it. And it, it seems to be that Jesus is confronted with a guy who's saying, well, I'm not just still mourning, but I, I need to go and arrange for these bones to be moved and uh, this thing to be done. And Jesus is saying to him, pal, if you're going to follow me, let somebody else arrange that. Let somebody else get on with that. My call cannot wait. The follower of Jesus has no earthly ties. Jesus says to this guy, you, you need to just leave this. I've heard people say all sorts of things over the years. Things like, oh, I'll follow Jesus when I'm retired. I've got more important things to, to see to. I've got my career to finish. I need to finish well. I've heard younger people say, well, you know, I've got my education to think about now. I've heard people say, I've got my girlfriend to think about. You know, I want to travel the world. I've got my boyfriend. I've got to provide a nest egg for my family, you know, because it's expensive nowadays to see them through college and university. Wouldn't God want me to be responsible like that? Mm. Thing is, if God is calling you to follow him, 
to commit your life to Jesus, you need to do it now. Because once you do that and you put Jesus first, everything else falls into place. So I am called as your pastor. But I'm called first to be a disciple of Jesus. Something that Sarah understands. You know, we have a great marriage. But she understands my first allegiance is to Christ. Then everything else fits in place. My children have always understood that. Christ first then everything else. And that's what Jesus is saying here. The follower of Jesus has no earthly security and he has no earthly ties. There are times when some of us just need to think it through and say, actually, I just need to leave this behind. And finally, you look at the last guy. Look at that in verses 61 and 62. Because the last guy, from the conversation Jesus has with him, you see that the follower of Jesus has got no earthly distractions. That's the key thing there. No earthly distractions. Look at the verses. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow, and I've spelled plow properly, because it really annoys me, the American spelling of plow and looks back, is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Just look at it. It's a reasonable request, isn't it? Would you deny a person who's going away one last chance to say, so long. You know, my son's going to Chad in April. I'm driving him to the airport. Why? Because I wants to say goodbye to him. And laugh as his mother cries her eyes out. No. You want, you want, I, I get that. I'll follow you. Just, just let me go back now and I'll just say goodbye to them. And then I'll. And Jesus says, well, no, 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 no. It's not the way this works. Do you remember when Peter, James, and John first followed Jesus? They literally dropped everything. Literally dropped their fishing nets to go after him. And in context, by the way, right as business was looking up, because they just had a bumper catch of fish. But there was something in the moment that they just boom, dropped everything, followed him. If you put it down now, that's the key to following Jesus. You can't go back. This is the cost of following Jesus. You declare it, you go for it. You pick up the plow and you don't look back. You can't go hankering after your family back home, pal. No. The master has called. Some have looked back when God called them forward. Very interesting in scripture to notice that. You go through scripture and see how many people look back. When, Jesus, when God is calling them forward. Remember Lot's wife? She looked back. Judas Iscariot. Demas. None of them is remembered for any good things they did. They, they weren't worthy. If we're going to follow Jesus, there's got to be no going back. That's why we have to think this thing through. Are you following Jesus? Are you counting the cost? 
Jesus put it like this on one occasion. Which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he's got enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and isn't able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and wasn't able to finish. Have you ever been to Spain? You travel around Spain and there's loads of half-built houses. It's really irritating. It's something to do with the tax laws and stuff. And apparently you need to start building in a certain way and build so much and, and all of that. But really odd to see half-built houses. John Stott, whose writings uh, I have greatly appreciated over the years, wrote this. The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warnings and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity. In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. Bang on the nail, John Stott. Bang on the nail. Can your Jesus walk on water? Is the question Pastor Tim asked us this morning. And if he can, and if he can do all the other things that Pastor encouraged us to reflect upon, then surely to follow him is going to cost us something. It's going to demand something of us. Because the true follower of Jesus can't have earthly distractions. We can't be looking to other things or other people. Jesus' words in this passage are very strong. And he's making it clear what it's going to cost. It will cost you and me everything. It will. But he calls for us to commit ourselves completely to him. To hold nothing back. Jesus said to the first man, you need to count the cost, pal. He said to the second man, you need to leave things behind. And he said to the third man, stop looking back. I'm calling you forward. So I wonder, what is, what is Jesus saying to you tonight? This service will finish in a few minutes. Go and get tea and coffee. You go home. You might have been a twicer, because you were here this morning and, and you heard Pastor Tim preach on, on, you know, what's your Jesus like? Can he walk on water? What does he do? And, and you may go home and you might reflect, oh, today was a good day, it was good, yeah. And what will it mean tomorrow? Have you counted the cost of what it really means to follow Jesus? 
Will he make an impact in your life on Tuesday morning? Will your Jesus be the kind of Jesus who can walk on water and heal the sick and raise the dead? When you face that awkward situation on Wednesday, or on Thursday, when you're debating about whether to make that phone call to that family member that you've been finding it increasingly difficult to talk to, will your Jesus, the Jesus you follow, make a difference in that situation? And will, will you have counted the cost of what it means to follow him? Because it might mean that you'll have to apologize to somebody. Or you might be right in what you've been saying, but you might just need to be humble. There is, I think, something in what God has been laying on both pastors' hearts today about how we understand the guy at the center of all of this. Do we get who Jesus is? And do we understand what it means to truly follow him?